Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda Kaufman Lindebaum Zichronale Vracha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. I'm your host, Tully Hartstark, Dean of Machon Siach. Our producer is Avi Bloom, and our engineer is Elmer Miranda. This episode is part of a Siach Gemara project that we call Making Sense, where faculty learn together and write on Gemara Sugyot that we teach. We are anticipating the questions that our students will ask when learning the Gemara shapes the way that we ourselves learn the Gemara and determines what we must understand in order to explain and make sense of the sugya to ourselves and to our students. Today, we are proud to welcome Dr. Sarit Katan Gribitz, a scholar and an SAR parent. Dr. Gribitz is Associate Professor in the Theology Department at Fordham University. Her areas of research and teaching include rabbinic literature, the history of Jews in the Roman Empire, the city of Jerusalem, conceptions of time and timekeeping, and gender and sexuality. Sarit received her BA and PhD from the Religion Department at Princeton University, studied Talmud and archaeology at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem as a Fulbright Fellow, and served as a research fellow at the Israel Institute for Advanced Study and the Einstein Center Kronoi in Berlin. Uh, Dr. Sarit Katan Gribitz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, in general about your work, actually the what we've been working on in our Gemara department for a number of years now is we've called the project uh, Making Sense, a Gemara project with the goal of working on making actually the shot and understanding the Gemara itself. It's so complicated and so many layers, but really focusing on the text of the Gemara on its own and as somebody who as yourself a scholar in uh, Talmud rabbinic literature, being able to uh, learn from you and to be able to integrate uh, what we can into our own project. Um, we're excited for the opportunity. But I thought it would be good to start with uh, getting to know a little bit about you and your work. How did you become involved in the study of Talmud on a personal level, Talmud and rabbinic literature? And uh, how did you come? One level is to enjoy the work, and it's another level to decide you want to dedicate your life to it. How did that come to be for you? So I went to a Jewish day school in Los Angeles that was a wonderful school, and it valued girls' education in almost every way, but it did not believe that girls should be learning Gemara. And we learned all of the traditional reasons why that was the case. Um, and I was an obedient child, and I didn't really question the reasons all that much. But on the last day of um, our Dinim class in my senior year of high school, I have no idea why we were compelled to do this, but a friend of mine and I pulled a Talmud off the shelf in the Beit Midrash where we had class, and we just opened the Gemara and we tried to make sense of it. I think it was Masachet Shabbat. And then our rabbi walked in, the teacher, and he asked us what we were doing. And we thought we would get in trouble for opening the Gemara. And um, and when we told him what we were doing, he explained, oh, um, we don't teach Gemara here as a subject, but if an individual girl wants to learn, that's fine. And I could have actually helped you do that. Um, and it was like a, a funny way of ending high school. On the one hand, it was t completely meaningless on the last day of school to be offered this opportunity. Um, and on the other hand, it gave 
some permission to the study of Gemara later in life. And so I went off to college um, and I had been warned in high school um, not to study Jewish studies in college because it was going to potentially um, shake a lot of the foundations of faith that I was taught growing up. Um, and so um, I listened as I had all of the previous times, um, but I was living in an all-girls dorm, um, and all of the women around me were other religious women in other religious communities, especially evangelical Christians and Catholic women. And they talked about all of these people, um, Matthew and Mark and John, and I had no idea who they were talking about. And so I decided to take a New Testament class so that I could learn a little bit more about their religious traditions um, and realized on my first day of this class that studying um, the New Testament, which was not Jewish studies, it was supposed to be something else entirely, um, was actually a class on ancient Judaism. Um, and so I became enamored with the study of ancient Judaism. And I, the next semester, took a class called Introduction to Rabbinic Literature. And that's really when I started studying Talmud, um, which I did not with a rabbi, but with a professor, um, Peter Schaefer from um, Germany, um, who became my first Talmud teacher. Um, and that's how I I started studying Talmud and decided um, to go to graduate school. And I have to say that I'm very grateful now that my girls started SAR, um, that they're learning Gemara every day in school, and that they're not only allowed to learn Gemara, but that they're encouraged to excel in it, both as an intellectual and a spiritual endeavor. Uh, that is a remarkable story. I think that is certainly a, a keeper down to the last moments of high school where that uh, that experience or possibility was open to you. And also significant, I think, for uh, people to understand that a love for Talmud and to be able to really grow in the learning of Talmud can happen. Uh, it doesn't have to happen in sixth. It's wonderful that it can start in sixth grade or seventh grade, but it can happen at different stages of life, which I think is really important. And I am very curious about how you now think about the difference between learning with uh, Peter Schaefer in a not only non Beit Midrash but not a Jewish uh, professor, and uh, what what life is like, what it's like to learn Gemara in a yeshiva Beit Midrash setting. I think I'm going to hold off on that and come back to it a little bit later because I want to start with actually the beginning of Mishnah. Your first book was entitled "Time and Difference in Rabbinic Judaism," and what you describe in the work that you do is really fascinating, but even on the first pages, you note that uh, our Mishnah, the beginning of Mishnah, starts with the word me'ematai. Time is so central to the way that uh, Chazal thought about Jewish life and uh, integrating Jewish texts into our practical world that the very first word is a time-related question. Um, and the Mishnah focuses there on Shema and knowing what the right time is to recite Shema in the morning and the evening. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, Chazal's, how you see Chazal's preoccupation, if that's the right word, with, with time? Why was that so for them and why is it important for us as students of Chazal to understand that? The One of the arguments of my book is exactly that, that the rabbis were really interested in time and that they have many 
halachot and discussions um, and stories about time and that we can't fully understand the rabbinic project without understanding the role that time plays in rabbinic sources. I think one of the first answers to your question, which is why are the rabbis so preoccupied with time, is a really simple one, which is that they're interested in all of the details that go into living an observant life, right? So the question of when is a really important question. How long? Um, um, when, when does something start? When does something end? Um, so it's part of a larger interest in filling all of the time and all of the space with proper practices and rituals and habits. But I think that there's something else that's going on that goes beyond just fitting into sort of a general rabbinic outlook on life, um, which is um, specific to to rabbinic texts. Um, if you look at the Mishnah and the different Masechtot, you notice that many of them start with questions about time. It's not only Masech Brachot, which asks, when do we recite the evening Shema? When do we recite the morning Shema? What is, when does evening start? When does morning start? How late into the evening? How late into the morning can, can we recite the Shema? Masechet um, Avodah for example, which is a tractate devoted to idolatrous worship, to thinking about the relationship between Jews and um, their neighbors um, amongst whom they lived and what practices they could and couldn't do begins with a question of um, when are the holidays of the uh, of the the Gentiles of the Goyim. Um, so um, that's another example of a tractate that starts with a question about time. But if you look at the beginning of Shvi'it, of Psachim, of Shkalim, of Yoma, Beitza, Rosh Hashanah, Ta'anid, Megillah, Mo'ed Katan, there are so many um, that begin with time. And then also time is woven throughout um, the whole rabbinic corpus. Um, and we'll have an opportunity to talk about um, Nida later as well. So the question of timing is really important for the redactors of the Mishnah. And so my book asks why. Um, and and I, I offer a few different answers to that question. Um, the first is that I think rabbinic sources and the rabbis who compose those sources were living in hard and interesting times. They were living in the Roman world, um, they were living in a post destruction era, um, and, um, and they needed or decided to, sought to um, figure out what it meant to live in the time that they lived. So one of the ideas that I talk about in my book is about the destruction of the temple being conceived not only as a destruction of a place, but also the destruction of the rhythm of time that the temple dictated. Um, that it became, in a way, a temporal trauma, um, this this destruction, right, that in which the rabbis then had to ask, how do we fill our time? How do we structure our time? How do we imagine our time now? Um, and, um, and one way in which they did that was to think about daily time and, and like, what, what do we do now um, rather than about the past or the distant redemptive future? 
So one way that we can understand um, the formation of rabbinic Judaism itself and its emphasis on sort of daily practice is the focus on living in the moment and suspending sort of focus on, on the bigger questions. The, the second big context for me in understanding why the rabbis are so interested in time is because they lived in the Roman Empire, and that was an empire that it's it would that that empire was also really focused on time and timekeeping. Um, the the Roman Empire, so uh, Julius Caesar reformed the Roman calendar. The Roman calendar had already been really important in the Republican period. It underwent uh, a really systematic reform with Julius Caesar and then some tweaking um, with Augustus. Festivals were really important, not only in Roman culture, but also in imperial culture and the transmission of Roman identity beyond Rome into the provinces. And then also um, Romans divided their time into nundial cycles, into cycles of eight days. They used hours, which they didn't invent, but that they adopted. Um, and they really thought of Roman culture, what it meant to be Roman was to use the Roman calendar, to use these nundial cycles, um, and also to use one's time in particular ways. Um, and so the rabbis lived in this Roman world where time was really important, and there were aspects of Roman timekeeping that they adopted and aspects that they rejected in favor of their own practices. And so it was also what one way in which the rabbis are Roman is that they care about time. Uh, that's fascinating. I actually would like to focus a little bit on each of those uh, reasons or explanations that you have maybe uh you should go, uh, I'll reshow and reshown, but I think I'm going to opt to not do that for the moment. I wanted to ask about the Roman, uh, the, you, you talk about, uh, in the book, you talk about uh, calendaric differences uh, between uh, Jews and Romans. When you talk, describing the time now, uh, there's a difference in my mind, like the example that is most relevant to our own learning of Gemara here at SAR High School is uh, less about calendar and more about the time of day and how to manage the time of day. So to understand that a bit better, were the Romans or in what what would, what motivated the Roman interest in the time of day uh, aspect of managing your time, contrasting that with the calendar? Like calendars, I understand, is the ways in which it's identity forming and uh, can establish a nation and shared you know shared everything. Uh, but what what prompted them to use those, to use hours in that way, and to think, uh, manage their day that way? It's a great question. There's, uh, there's work by various scholars, including Anya Wolkenauer and James Kerr, who are work in Roman history and Roman literature, um, that in which they have done studies about the way in which Romans, and when I say Romans, I mean mostly elite Roman men, um, which is fine because when we talk about rabbinic sources, we're also talking about elite rabbinic men. Um, one of the ways in which they thought about what it meant to be an elite Roman man was to use one's daily time well and not to waste one's time. And what did it mean to use one's time well? 
Um, well, it meant to be efficient and it meant not being idle and it meant focusing on things that really mattered, which for such men was philosophical and intellectual pursuits. So one example of this is the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca, who wrote many works, including a, a work on idleness, um, but also letters that he wrote from his um, rural home um, to a friend, and he wrote them daily. And in those letters, he described how he was using his time. Um, and this was one way to communicate um, that he was um, using his time in, in, in the proper way and thus being um, a good Roman. Um, the Romans especially were very concerned about wasting time and industriousness is um, central. And we see um, we see the tension between Romans and how they conceived of Jews, for example. And when I say Romans, I don't mean all Romans. I mean, you know, in, in particular texts that we have. So Seneca, for example, in, in a quotation of Seneca's work that is preserved in, in the writings of the Christian theologian Augustine, Seneca describes the Jews as people who waste a seventh of their life in idleness because they celebrate Shabbat and Shabbat as Seneca imagined it was a day where you don't do anything and therefore you waste your time. And so the Jews were like time wasters. The flip side is that Jews, pre-Rabbinic Jews and Rabbinic Jews had to really grapple with this critique. Um, so for example, Philo, who was a first century Jewish philosopher, a little bit older than Seneca, but they overlapped, um, has a, he wrote many things in Greek. One was a treatise on um, the laws of Judaism, and he goes through all of the holidays. And in his discussion of Shabbat, um, he explains, you know, actually Shabbat is not a waste of time. Shabbat is both a way for people to rest so that they're more efficient in the way they use their time the other six days of the week, but also that Shabbat is a laboring of the soul, that during the week we use our bodies and on Shabbat we use our soul, our intellect in philosophical pursuits, which was exactly the way that a good Roman citizen um, should be using their time. Um, and when we look at rabbinic sources, too, we can sort of trace these anxieties about um, what does it mean to celebrate Shabbat in the context um, of an empire that valued work as a way of using one's time. And to get back to the question of hourly timekeeping, there's a very long history to hours, which originated in ancient Egypt and eventually made their, their way to the Roman Empire. But one of the ways of dividing time in the Roman Empire was hours, um, but it was a way that required some level of expertise and some level of technological access um, to sundials and other timekeeping devices, but punctuality. So not only using your time well, but also being precise with your time was not only sort of an expression of your value, but also of your power and your privilege. Um, and so we see, for example, the Roman emperors would stamp their letters, not only with the day, but also with the hour. Um, and there are other monuments and, and, and other aspects of Roman culture that sort of signal the emperor's 
sort of power over time through precise hourly timekeeping. We see that too manifesting itself in rabbinic sources, both that you're supposed to be precise with the way in which you observe halakha, but also, at least in, in Amoraic sources, we also see that God is associated with hourly timekeeping. God is very precise with time, um, and that also is a very Roman way of imagining God. And getting back to the the first point that you made earlier, there's uh, a wonderful quote in in the book, it says, uh, though time may appear to be natural and universal based on elements such as the rising sun, the phases of the moon or the seasons, time is, in fact, culturally constructed and communally specific. And in terms of the first point that you were making earlier, um, I'm curious how you would respond. I think that there is uh, often we would find that uh, young adults, teenagers, and sometimes uh, older adults feel like the rabbis are uh, if I could say picayune or focused so much on the little details, why do they care about time so much? And this quote gives a very different sense to why time is important. I'm wondering how this uh, you, you could use this to help explain to students of ours uh, why, why the rabbis cared so much and what does it mean that it was time uh, is culturally constructed and communally specific? The first thing that I would explain to students about time is that we often think about time as something that simply exists. So the sun rises and sets, the moon waxes and wanes, the seasons change, our bodies change, right? We, we grow from infants to children to adolescents to young adults and so on. But when we think about it more carefully, we realize that the way that we divide and organize our time and the way that we conceptualize time and the way we use time is not natural or universal. It's not that all people do it in the same way or all communities do it in the same way. Um, and that this is true at every scale of time. So it's true in the way that we think about time progressing linearly from a starting point onwards, how we think about eras or centuries or large divisions of time, about the length of years and months, whether we use the sun or the moon or a combination of them, how we divide time into weeks or nundial cycles or 10-day or decades, um, whether we use hours or some other subdivision, minutes, seconds, um, life stages, and so on, that each aspect of how we think about and experience time is particular to our historical and cultural context, and that each of those ways in which we think about time also has its own fascinating history, right? So we can tell a history of the seven-day week. We can tell a history of the Roman or the rabbinic calendar. We can um, tell a history of how menstruation and menstrual time was conceived in different ways um, in different historical periods and so on. And so um, the way that we divide and organize time is one aspect. Another is concepts, things like punctuality and aging and youth and old age. All of those also seem to be obvious. Um, and when we start thinking about it, we realize how culturally specific they are. What it means to be on time means different things in different contexts. It means different things um, in our own context, right? Being punctual to SAR in the past meant arriving around eight. And this year, when students have to 
swipe in, being punctual means being there before eight, right? That's a shift, not only in an administrative practice at the school, but in a whole different way, it cultivates um, a, a different relationship to the start of school. When does school actually start? How are you penalized? Um, the anxiety you might feel when you rush to school in the morning. Um, and um, being punctual to a party might be coming within the first 15 minutes. Um, and being punctual to a party um, in, in certain um, cultural contexts and in certain um, places um, might mean coming within the first two hours um, or coming two hours after the time that a party is called. So even things like punctuality are um, are not obvious. They're, they tell us, they're both culturally specific, but they also tell us something about a culture. Um, and then also how we should use our time is also um, culturally specific, right? What is a good use of time? What is a waste of time? Is busyness something that's valued or is rest and slowing down something that's valued? Um, so that's th- that's what I mean when I say that that time is culturally constructed. One of the main arguments in my book is that not only is time historically contingent and culturally constructed, but that the rabbis use time to do certain things. And one of the things that they do is they use time to create what it means to be a rabbinic community and also to differentiate that community from the others around them. So it's not only that the rabbis are thinking about and organizing time into a calendar, but they're also using their own calendar to create what it means to be rabbinic and not Roman. Um, And we see that the use of time is a power, right? That, That people have the power to use time to create a world in which they live. Um, and so when when we're thinking about all of these little questions about how are Chazal thinking about time or how are they dividing time or exactly when um, does something need to happen or when does something expire, um, what we're actually asking is how did the rabbis use time to create Jewish identity to create the rabbinic community. And I think just as importantly, what are the values that undergird their conception and organization of time? So being really punctual about filah or about shema is not just about being precise, but it's a value of using one's time to worship God in particular ways and to always have that front and center, for example. You have a chapter in the book uh, that uh, talks about Jews and Romans and a chapter that talks about Jews and Christians. There's one chapter that talks about uh, the way that Chazal used time to find men and women, Jewish men and women. Uh, In our curriculum, you reference in that chapter that Masachet Brachot plays a prominent role, as does uh, the idea of mitzvah seishazman gramat, time-bound mitzvot, and masachet kiddushin. Those are two masachot that we learn on a regular basis here in school. I know that that chapter also talks about nida, but and the 
those uh, sections are relevant for us uh, as an institution. And so I'm interested in focusing on that chapter in particular. Could you explain the argument that you're making uh, in that chapter about men and women and time and Chazal? When I started thinking about rabbinic concepts of time, I made a very simple observation, which is the one that we've been talking about for, for for much of this podcast, which is that the Mishnah begins with the obligation to recite the Shema every morning and evening. And it really becomes a cornerstone of what it means to be a rabbinic Jew. And yet, it's also only an obligation that men have. And, um, and then it also becomes associated with this larger set of mitzvot asheshazman, grama, positive time-bound commandments, that also only apply to men. And in fact, the whole categorization is characterized as one that applies to men. And so if you only study those sources, you might be led to believe that only men are obligated in time-bound commandments and in the Shema. Um, But of course, I knew that that wasn't the case because women also have all sorts of obligations that are temporally specific, not least of which is nida, menstrual purity, um, to which the rabbis devote a tractate as well in the Mishnah. Um, And those laws also require women to be very vigilant with their time, to count their days, to check their bodies every morning and evening, and so on. So what was interesting to me was that rabbinic sources don't only mandate daily rituals for men, but also for women, that these rituals aren't identical, right? So for men, um, it entails a bodily ritual that declares devotion to God, and then the time-bound commandments in general, which um, are all sorts of often embodied practices um, that relate to um, connecting to, to God in some way. And, and for women, those daily rituals also involved the body, um, but they were often associated with establishing purity and impurity and um, relationships between a woman and the objects and the people around her. Um, and then also, I realized that the rabbis only characterize or conceptualize men's rituals as ta- time bound, right? So it's both, there's a set of of halachot or rituals for men and for women, those are different and they cultivate different senses of self and community and relationship to others, but also that only one of them is seen as time bound and the other is in the sources itself, not conceptualized or not presented in that way. And that all of these moves construct men and women's time and gender time in general in different ways. And that it's not only that we can understand how the rabbis think about time in different ways, but also how the rabbis use time and rituals related to time and conceptions of how time works to create what it means to be a man and a woman um, and and gender more generally. How do you explain the idea that that only the uh, positive uh, mitzvot for men were called time-bound mitzvot and nida was not. Is, do you have a, a theory or an explanation for that? So I don't have something that I would completely stand behind, but I do have some suspicions. Um, one, one trend that I've noticed in sources, and this is also something that my colleague and friend Lynn Kay has noticed in her work on time and rabbinic sources, 
is that very often rabbinic sources associate women with a sort of nonchalance about time. Um, so going back to our conversation about punctuality, and when I said punctuality is something that is also culturally constructed, in rabbinic sources, men are more punctual than women. Um, this is, you see it in traces, right? There's no masechet that discusses men's punctuality or something like that. Um, but for example, in um, the halachot of Shabbat, um, the men have to remind the women to light the candles before Shabbat, right? It's a, a sense um, that women are forgetful um, and and lacks with time. Or for example, with um, other ways in which women are seen as not being able to be punctual in the same way. That is also a broader trend in, in the Roman world um, of, of thinking about punctuality um, as gendered. It's also something that I noticed um, appear in, in other studies, um, not that women and men are have different relationships to punctuality, but that they're constructed as having different relationships to punctuality and that that does something to the way we think about men and women. So um, there's there's a study um, of colonial Egypt by On Barak um, where he talks about in this moment when um, a certain class of men wants to sort of construct themselves um, in a particular way. One of the ways is to sort of publish their daily schedules by the hour. So this goes back to Seneca, right? One of the ways of projecting yourself um, is to show what you do with your time and that it's a very rigid schedule that, of course, relies on the labor of other people to make happen. Um, and at the same time, we see sources where women are blamed for when men are late. So he he discusses, for example, a cartoon in which um, a man is late for the train because his wife was busy putting on makeup. Um, right. So his his lack of punctuality is blamed on the women. And so what one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is these sources are not describing necessarily that women are less punctual, they are using their description of women as less punctual to make a claim about gendered difference. And they're using time in that way. And so I think the the, the, the rabbinic sources don't give us a reason for why mitzvot man grandma um, are apply to men and don't apply to women. Those are reasons that we get in later sources, especially in medieval sources, and they're often apologetic. But what, so I don't know why that category was constructed, but I know what that category does. And what it does is it says men can be somewhere at a certain time and women can't be. Um, and then that becomes the reality. Uh, I'd like to take a few moments to bridge, to start to bridge between the world of uh, academic scholarship and history and the the contemporary high school yeshiva classroom. Uh, a lot of what, taking this chapter, a lot of what you describe resonates, it gives, and there's a lot to think about in terms of the sources themselves, what they mean, what they're trying to say, and how to internalize them today. Uh, when I think about 
uh, the high school classroom, I struggle with the degree to which this very relevant and important conversation that comes out of the texts is uh, should or could be brought into a high school classroom. I'm wondering what you think about that. So I think that rabbinic texts, or rather I should say, I don't think, they do. Rabbinic texts deal with many topics, right? Even the quirkiest, most surprising, non-intuitive cases. And I think that they give us a unique way of exploring the absurdity of the world. Um, And I think that high school students are really smart. And I know you agree. And that they can handle complexity and that they appreciate it when we take them seriously as thinkers, that it's a form of respect. So I think that studying brachot or kiddushin, these texts that raise difficult topics allow us to have really honest conversations with our students about all sorts of things, about human relationships, about the value of individuals, about gender and sexuality and prayer and God and dozens of other topics that are relevant and important today as they were in antiquity. And so I think in a way, Engaging with the Gemara's attitude is important for two reasons, that it highlights both how differently we think about these topics today, but also how we think about the topics today is a result of how we have studied. It's a result also or a legacy of the Gemara itself, right? So making sense of the Gemara as a product of a particular time and place and community and also as a text that has shaped the subsequent communities in which we now find ourselves. And, and encourage is the, the students to think about their relationship to that history and that past and also the present moment. It's like recognizing the similarity, recognizing the difference, then opens up a possibility to talk about how we fit into that story. Um, and to add, to bring the the religion and halacha, if I think about history and meaning and the past and the way I in the present or we in the present uh, learn from and integrate that past in, the idea of the religious life and uh, the world of halachic observance, um, there are certain requirements or expectations that can grow with that that I think can generate a certain tension in terms of what you're describing. Uh, Can you hold on to all of those things at once? Yeah, so I don't think of it as a tension at all. So for me, the academic study of Talmud, the Torah more generally, is in no way separate from my identity as a religious Jew. So working through a text itself, for me, is a thrilling and also deeply meaningful enterprise and are also a religiously meaningful exercise. Um, And I think that every person connects to Judaism and Jewish texts in in a different way, and academic study is one of those ways. Um, I think I I have this perspective in part because I teach at the moment at a Catholic Jesuit university in a theology department. And so I'm surrounded by colleagues, some of whom are priests um, and others 
of whom are lay, lay people but are theologians, who study religious texts and ideas in ways that are simultaneously academic and religiously relevant to the communities that hold those texts sacred. And I think it's an approach that upsets the clear boundaries that we sometimes place between meaning and criticism or between faith and reason. And I think one of the challenges as a religious reader of these texts is to figure out a way where everything makes sense. And so my, my approach to Jewish texts is similar. I need to figure out ways for the text to make sense to me, to be meaningful to me in my full identity as an academic or someone who also wants to see these texts in a historical um, um, and, and critical way um, and as an observant Jew, right? Um, and so that doesn't mean that I understand everything. And I, I want to say on the contrary, right? So I've learned to appreciate the questions that arise from the text and to grapple with those contradictions and the conundrums and to have the humility to say that I don't know how to always make sense of everything and that I might not need to make sense of any of everything um, and that having satisfactory answers is not actually the point, but that part of what it means, and, and I would say this is a very rabbinic approach to your to your question, right? It's to be osek betalmud Torah, bedivrei Torah. That that what it means to be a religious Jew is to study the texts, not to know what they mean um, or exactly how they ought to be applied, but to be engaged in their study, right? And and, and it's the study that's central. It's not the 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 answers th that are central. Um, so that's like one answer to your question. I, I think I do have um, also another, which is that um, I've also studied um, halacha in, in non-academic settings, and, and most recently in the advanced kolal at Yeshivat Maharat, um, and, and now also um, one morning a week at Yeshivat Chovei Torah. And that has been a very different kind of a study um, as um, Professor Jeff Rubenstein um, mentioned in an earlier podcast um, um, in, in that, that you were part of, you know, he, he said academic Talmud study sort of ends with a sugya and works backwards to see how a sugya was constructed um, and, and what it means. Um, and that the study of halakha in particular, um, but, but also Talmud in 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 a Beit Midrash setting sort of starts with the Talmud and moves forward in time. So the study of halakha for me has been a really meaningful um, way of studying these texts in a totally different way. And that's about the development of the halakhic tradition and the role of post scheme um, and, and thinking about sort of how these ancient texts are then applied and changed um, and and adapted to new circumstances but there also um, it's not that I put my academic hat aside it's just that I think about the way that halakha develops as this um, process that takes into consideration many different personal and communal needs and so I think I have learned a lot about the way I think about ancient rabbis by learning about the halachic process in later periods. And I think I've learned a lot about halacha by thinking about ancient rabbinic contexts. Thank you. That's very beautiful um, and helpful. 
Uh, I'd like to ask, just before we close, I'm curious if you could share with us a little bit about your work now. What have you been, what are you working on uh, at the moment? Um, so I'm still working uh, on time in various different ways including that I'm really interested in conceptions of the nighttime in rabbinic sources um, and Ben Hashmashot, Twilight, um, and the way in which rabbis think about nighttime, but also how studying the nighttime might illuminate other aspects of rabbinic sources. But where I spend most of my time now is um, with two projects related to the history of Jerusalem. I, I teach a regular class on the history of Jerusalem from Jewish, Christian, and Muslim perspectives. And over the over the time that I've taught this course, I've become more and more interested in the gendered history of Jerusalem and the way in which women have played an important role in all of the periods of Jerusalem's history and in all of the religious communities that have lived in Jerusalem and have thought of Jerusalem as a sacred place. Um, and so the the large project that I'm working on is a feminist history of Jerusalem. And the particular project that I'm working on right now is a book about Heleni Hamelka, Helena of Adiabene, who is first mentioned in the writings of Josephus Flavius in the first century, um, but also in rabbinic sources and early Christian sources, all the way to her street in Jerusalem, um, Rehov Heleni Hamaka. And so I'm writing a, a long history of this particular figure and what we can learn about the transmission of tr tradition and about the city of Jerusalem and about the interaction between religious communities through this figure. Uh, Dr. Sarit Katan Grivitz, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to spend with us. It's an honor, actually, to have you as scholar and as SAR parent, uh, share with us the work that you're doing and to help us in our journey as we continue to bring um, hopefully meaningful Gemara to our students. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grand Conversation. Please be sure to visit our website, machonsiach.org, where you can subscribe to our podcast and find all of the work of our faculty fellows, including papers and podcasts on a variety of educational topics. Until next time, this has been The Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast.